We are mere weeks away from the ending of the Rise of the Floodborne metagame. February 23rd will hit, Into the Inklands will be here, and some of the cards that we have found love for in Rise of the Floodborne may simply dissolve. Today we're going to be discussing the winners and losers of the Rise of the Floodborne metagame. What made them tick, what made them win, and unfortunately, what made them overhyped and underperformed. Let's get into it. Disney Lorcana has now released two sets. The second set was the Rise of the Floodborne. And with it came many new archetypes and new cards that really over-delivered for performances for certain ink combinations. In Chapter 1, we truly had Amber Steel and Ruby Sapphire being the core to so many wins in the game. With the Rise of the Floodborne release, some of those things only became even more dominant. Our first winners on the list are the Cinderella Castan singing package with the new featured songs of Let the Storm Rage On and Strength of a Raging Fire. Cinderella Ballroom Sensation was a card that in chapter one was absolutely missed. Would have loved to have seen it. Having a singer three for a one cost was definitely a card that was always built for greatness. Castan, however, as a three cost, three three, one lore, and singer five. However, did not replicate the ability of Ariel being able to go find songs to sing. He simply was definitely overlooked, I believe, in the beginning of the Rise of the Floodborne metagame. Very few players were including him in lists very early on. However, as Steel Songs continued to evolve within the Rise of the Floodborne metagame, Gaston became a staple, realistically understanding that Singer is just one of the most powerful keywords in Disney Lurkana. And characters like Cinderella, Gaston, Ariel will likely always be true versatile cards moving forward within the Disney Larkana metagame. Songs are one of the most interesting and most powerful cards types in Disney Larkana. Having a keyword like singer will very likely always end up having favor in the Disney Larkana metagame moving forward. It might be safe to say that Cinderella and Gaston, along with Let the Storm Rage On and Strength of a Raging Fire, have likely exceeded expectations, even though they were quite high. From this point moving forward, each new three-cost song and five-cost song will always find a reason for these characters to see play. But nonetheless, they can also potentially sing up to two-cost songs or four-cost songs. With that, Cinderella and Gaston will likely remain a consistent key component of all singer decks moving forward. The first loser is actually an archetype. Amber Sapphire was likely the third most consistent deck in the Disney Lurkana metagame towards the end of the Chapter 1 meta. However, since the release of Rise of the Floodborne, this is likely one of the least played ink combinations within the game. There are just other versions of this deck now that are quite... There are just other versions of this archetype now that are honestly simply more consistent and better. These two, while in the past were able to utilize ramp to kind of get ahead of your opponent or consistently create card advantage through Carefree Surfer and Hades, really has fallen out of favor and has shown to be less relevant in Amber as a whole. Amber has found other ways of success utilizing cards like Mufasa, 
Sleepy's Flute, and among others. While Sapphire has found a home in other incombinations as well, ramping to cards like Be Prepared or A Whole New World. While the deck was truly a mainstay within the Chapter 1 metagame, it just has never, ever seen success at all in the Rise of the Floodborne metagame. I'm not even sure that there has been a single top 8 from any reported event thus far of at least 30 or more players that have shown this archetype to even exist at all within the Rise of the Floodborne metagame. And that is a really far fall down the mountain peak for this deck that was truly almost contending for the most played deck and most powerful deck towards the end of the Chapter 1 metagame. Winners, Amethyst Bounce. Honestly, as each one of these cards were revealed and spoiled through the Rise of the Bloodborne spoiler season, I think in certain ways they all kind of raised an eyebrow of the true power level. I don't think anyone really grasped that full concept until we were able to sleeve these cards up and start playing with them. Understanding what Madame M. Snake and Madame M. Fox were going to be able to do to protect your characters and cause additional triggers from come-into-play effects or when-leave-play effects really never caught the full attention until the opening weeks of Rise of the Floodborne metagame. However, from very early on, from PAX Unplugged and GalaxyCon, it was very, very clear that this these four cards would likely be a mainstay of the start of every Amethyst deck from the point that point forward. 16 cards to start all your Amethyst decks seems a little bit crazy. We can even go to argue and say 20 if we really include a card like Friends on the Other Side. But these four cards, without a shadow of a doubt, are likely the biggest winners in all of the Rise of the Floodborne metagame. They have consistently shown up in large numbers in every top eight reported through the entire season. Just last week alone, there were over 55 decks including these four cards. So if we just assume that all 55 of those decks have a four of copy of each individual card here, that's 220 copies of these cards across those decks, which is unbelievable. Every other archetype out there is making choices between the cards they're really playing and not having a straightforward core across the other inks. Amethyst is the one ink that this is the core. In every single deck within the Rise of the Funboard metagame that includes Amethyst, it will include these four cards. And it's very likely that that will remain true all the way through into the Inklands. Emerald definitely had another losing set. The four cards on the screen now, with maybe the subtraction of Bounce, were definitely all cards that were so very hyped during reveal season. Bell, Hidden Archer, Cheshire, Cat from the Shadows, and Beast Relentless were legendaries and super rares that people were going to be so excited about opening and playing in the Rise of the Floodborne metagame. Well, here we are months later, and these cards have done virtually nothing. Beast Relentless maybe has shown up from time to time, the very, very occasional Cheshire Cat, but Bell simply has done nothing at all for anyone for being one of the first cards revealed in Rise of the Floodborne. Bounce, 
unfortunately suffers from being an uninkable. This was a car that had a lot of potential to really kind of give the Emerald strategy a way to interact with the board a little bit better. But that uninkable is so crucial in deck building these days that it really just cannot find a home because there's just much better cards that have to be played that are also uninkable. Across the board, I believe Emerald really, really whiffed in this set. I think there were so many cards that were sought after to be the changing cards for the archetype that is Emerald, and none of them really came through. The best combination of cards is Bucky and Prince John, but even then, it is a pretty limited deck design, and it's really low grade of success across many archetypes. Kind of showcases that Emerald is very likely the least successful deck in Rise of the Flood form as far as ink goes. The five random cards that I don't think we talked enough about in the reveal season of Rise of the Floodborne. Doc, leader of the Seven Dwarves, was an effective lantern that was revealed early on that honestly most looked at and said, oh, that's cute, the dwarf deck will be nice, maybe he'll see some play. Well, Doc has found a home in most, if not all, Amber decks to this point that focus around Mufasa. Although he's not very commonly found in the Singer decks, in any aggressive Amber style, the character really does deliver for that archetype. Benjen being a 3-cost, 2-3 two, with 2 lore is almost enough, ironically, for him to be playable, but the addition of We Have a Chance, which allows you to banish the occasional item, comes up huge more often than not, along with being a true threat to gaining lore for you throughout the game quite nicely. Cusco is likely the least discussed card of all through this spoiler season when it comes to the cards on this list. A two-cost inkable, one strength, two willpower, one lore is a card that not many at all discussed or talked about. But understanding the metagame and where it has gone from week one to week ten, it now looks as if we were all crazy not including him earlier on. He's a true trend of the metagame and understanding that you A, need protection from Lady Tremaine, or B, need to punish opponents for using removal on him, and C, ironically, is being able to utilize him as a removal that replaces itself. Being able to sing Teeth of Ambitions is a wonderful trade. Being able to get buffed by another card to then help Cusco trade into theirs to get that card back through Cusco's ability. He really did over-deliver, I think, in the Rise of the Floodborne metagame, and he's probably one of the unsung heroes of the metagame before it's all said and done. Hiram Flavorsham was a card that was honestly not talked about before the release of Rise of the Floodborne. I think he kind of came out as a secret, not many really looked at him, and then all of a sudden, the moment we were able to start building decks, Popsicles was born, and this card went through the roof. From being at one point a $15 starter deck card all the way back down to two or three dollars at best, the card truly created archetypes on its own, which I really love the addition of this character kind of just being this offset item creator that really didn't exist in chapter one. Chapter one saw many cards that did utilize the item keyword in their text box, but none of them were able to deliver. 
Ariel, Maurice, Bell, all having cards that interact with items and none of them really ever being meta-defining whatsoever. Of course, the big crab was able to find its way into homes here and there as well. I think the shining star on this particular list of winners is Minnie Mouse Stylish Surfer. The three cost one three evasive looks so innocent when spoiler seasons came out. I'm not sure that many of us understood how many games this card would truly end up winning. Being a staple in so many Ruby archetypes from the moment we realize how good two lore is on a three cost evasive character goes a truly long way to creating a tech card option giving life to cards like Fidget and Peter Pan's Shadow, or even now more recently, You Can Fly. Minnie Mouse Styler Surfer has almost developed the metagame through just being able to find a way to answer her or suffer the consequences of leaving a two-lore character with evasive in play, gaining four or six or eight lore in a given game. Overhyped and underperformed. Bibbidi Bobbidi Boo was my favorite card revealed during the reveal season. I am still over the moon excited about the potential of this card. However, to date, it has seen so very little success within the metagame that it's kind of frustrating for many Emerald players around. Unfortunately, the sad truth of this card being uninkable is just the core factor. You need to make sure that your uninkables that you choose in your deck are always delivering on what they are meant to be doing. And Bibbidi Bobbidi Boo is relying on other characters to survive for you to truly be able to over deliver with the card. And because of that, its uninkable cost has shown to be problematic for Emerald decks. Dinner Bell, another four cost uninkable, but it brought draw power to the ruby ink which it was desperately in need of however this card did see certain levels of play very early on within the metagame being able to draw cards off a of mother gothel or off leftover damage on maui was always exciting however for those things to line up consistently it's proven that ruby players in ruby sapphire and definitely in ruby amethyst but had no need for it have just seemingly fallen off the card. I don't think I've seen Dinner Bell in a top eight list in probably over six weeks. Zero to Hero. The two-cost song that honestly never was, to the point that even in the finals of PAX Unplugged, the winner of the event saying, man, I wish I would have replaced this with literally any other card I can think of. This card was likely one of the most talked about overhyped songs in the history of Disney Lurkana to date. Sadly, this card has not delivered, and I don't think it really will. I think that most occasions, players are remembering exactly the one time it is successful, and they are falsely remembering the amount of times this card sits in your hand and does almost absolutely nothing at all. How are you feeling so far about the list? Let me know in the comments. What are your winners? What are your losers so far of the Rise of the Floodborne metagame? If you haven't yet, make sure you smash the like button for me. And of course, if you're new to the channel, you're kind of enjoying the vibe, definitely hit subscribe. Thank you guys so much for watching today. If you're looking for Rise of the Floodborne singles, then you should check out our shop right here as a QR code. I'll also link it in the description for you if you're looking for it there. 
always helps buying from our TCG store direct. It helps us. It's no difference in price to you. All it is is a little bit more revenue for us. So that if you're looking to support the Forbidden Mountain, that is the best way to do it is definitely utilizing our TCG Pro Store. Let's get into the rest of the winners and losers. Three cards that have created archetypes on their own. Arthur Wizard Apprentice came out of the gates swinging hard, being one of the most successful three-cost characters in the game for the first month of the Rise of the Floodborne metagame. There were several weeks where he had fallen off a little bit and players had been weary of playing the Wizard's Apprentice because of the resurgence of steel in the metagame and cards like Smash. However, as the game continued to develop and we realized that Ruby Amethyst was still finding ways to consistently beat uh, the Amber Steel players among other versions of Steel decks, then it became a way to how do you combat the metagame that way and realizing that Ruby Amethyst was actually a great way to combat against Ruby Amethyst. Turning your deck into a more aggressive version Utilizing Arthur and, of course, Mini Mouse Surfer really went a long way in the combination of leveraging your gameplay and your style against the control versions of Ruby Amethyst. Arthur is the centerpiece to all of those things. With the addition of so many one-cost and two-cost, two-lore and three-lore characters, the deck was really able to consistently pressure Ruby Amethyst control decks into its own demise in a way. Mufasa Betrayed Leader, when spoiled, probably didn't get enough love for what it would end up doing within the metagame. Although it wasn't to start the metagame, it was more of a, hey, I need a way to recover from Be Prepared a little bit better. It still found its way in the metagame and creating multiple decks from, honestly, just this card existing. Understanding that this character alone had the potential to recover and help you stave off opposing board wipes comes in a big way. I also think there's a little bit lessons to be learned here of be prepared being so good against so many different characters. However, the Ruby Amethyst players were utilizing characters like Rabbit and characters like Goat to still gain benefit when playing be prepared. Mufasa is the counter to that. It's punishing your opponent for playing Be Prepared while you're still able to get a character back on the board. Now, because the character comes into play exerted, we have seen some levels of annoyance from Mufasa players when they end up hitting the wrong characters and still being kind of weak to Fox or Lady Tremaine, along with other options, uh, unfortunately. But all in all, Mufasa Betrayed Leader definitely came up big so far in the Rise of the Floodborne metagame. Last but not least is Cogworth Grandfather Clock. This is a card that when revealed, everyone was really excited and honestly worried about. But then, about six weeks through the metagame, this character had seen very little play. It wasn't until just a few weeks ago that this card really came on the map and showcasing its skill amongst the Sapphire Steel Wheel decks. The shift three hasn't really mattered yet. It might in future sets if we get more cheaper Cogsworths or a card like Morph potentially. The ward is the key factor here. Being able to play a five cost character in most cases on turn four that it has ward means your opponent can't interact with it and it can't 
really get to the point of removing you from being five call songs that you desperately want to. But unwind, giving your character to resist one, truly is where this character excels. In any game where you can have multiple on the field, it can create a really big nuisance for your opponent, taking away challenging damage in a huge margins. If you're curious to hear more about the Cogsworth and the Grandfather Clock and everything he has to offer, I actually interviewed George Machado, who had a top eight performance in the 270-player event a couple weeks ago. You can hear from the horse's mouth all about Cogsworth in that video in our description below. Oh, what big losers we have here. Shere Khan, Menacing Predator, Christopher Robin Adventurer, and Sisu, Divine Water Dragon. These cards honestly just never delivered. All of them had some self-promotion going on and promoting different play styles and really presenting themselves as answers to things that we thought we needed and then realizing that none of them were just very realistic at all to really be successful. The Don't Insult My Intelligence of Shere Khan being stuck on a 3-3 with one lore really just didn't deliver. Uh, whenever you, whenever one of your characters challenges another character to gain a lore, sounds great. But then you just realize that more often than not, it's better to just quest anyway and force your opponent to challenge you when you're ahead. And when you're behind, this generally isn't enough of an ability to catch you up because you had to waste a turn to even place your con to get the ability in itself. Many things looked good on paper, but in the end, just simply didn't deliver for the Menacing Predator. Christopher Robin was another character at six cost, two strand, six willpower. It seemed like all was going to be okay. The two lore was wonderful. But whenever you ready this character, if you have two or more other characters in play, gain two lore, it's just asking so much. It's asking for Christopher Robin to, you know, survive a, a a, the turn you play him, B, the turn he challenges, and C, the turn he readies, you have to have two things. So it takes three, almost three turns, in all honesty, for this character to even deliver you to lore. And we have seen so many other more efficient ways to gain lore outside of questing that will always be together was very clearly the line that did not deliver in Rise of the Floodborne. Sisu Divine Water Dragon as a 2-4 two lore character unfortunately as an uninkable four cost as i think is why the ability of i trust you doesn't matter it would be great if you could fit this card into your deck and it did deliver the ability of whenever this character quests look at the top two cards of your deck you may put one in your hand put the rest on the bottom of your deck in any order that sounds wonderful but realizing that most sapphire decks almost always skip turn four and then that this card coming out any turn after that means not only is it vulnerable to cards like Madame Mim Fox and now later in the game as we get Maui, you may only ever get one ability off I Trust You. And that just is not worth uninkable. I don't think anyone's really interested in hoping my 2-4 survives so I can look at two additional cards. If the card was inkable, if the card had a better stat line, 
If the card was cheaper, I honestly think that if this card was a three-cost inkable 2-4, it, it would see play. But I don't even I still don't even think that that's very good. This was a card that I think we all really want it to be good. And in the end, it showed that it just can't be. Losing to Madam M. Fox above the curve of three and the Madam M. Fox still being on the table will likely be the biggest downfall for this character for all of eternity. Uh, in all honesty, Sisu is probably one of the biggest letdowns in the entire Rise of the Floodworm metagame. What are your feelings on the winners and losers? Let me know in the comments if I missed one. Was there a particular standout that I should have discussed? Was there something that I definitely should have put down more? I'd love to hear your thoughts. In all honesty, I thought this was a lot of fun. I thought it was a good time to make this video to really discuss the full metagame. And of course, if you are not fully caught up on the metagame, you can check out this video right here. We will catch you in the next one. Thank you guys so much for watching. Hit that like button if you're not. Hit subscribe. Catch ya.